Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you here today. And those of you watching online, good morning to you. Uh, as I get started this morning, I, I want to ask you to think for a moment about where you go to get good advice. Where is it you go for good advice? I, I imagine every single one of us would answer that a little bit differently. Uh, some might say we go to our parents. Even if you're an adult, you might still go to your parents. Uh, or, or maybe it depends on the thing, what the thing is that you need advice on. Maybe if it's related to finances, you go to a financial planner or an accountant. If, if it's legal advice you need, you go to a lawyer. Uh, maybe if it's tech stuff, we go to our kids. Am I the only one? <laughs> Who finds that to be the case? Um, some of us might say we go to, to Google. I get a lot of my advice from Google. That's a big thing for me. Uh, maybe you find the wisest, oldest person you can, and you trust that their years of experience are going to result in good advice for you. Uh, a few years ago, I, I read an article about a, a group of retired friends, these men, retired men, who used to meet at a deli in Salt Lake City every single Saturday morning to kind of talk about life and catch up with each other. And after a while, they got sick of just sitting there having the same conversation every week. And so just as a lark one day, these seven retired friends set up a card table at their local farmer's market, and they put a big banner over the table saying, old coots giving advice. <laughs> it's probably bad advice, but it's free. And uh, to their surprise, people started showing up and sharing their problems. They started asking questions like, how can I find someone to love? Uh, or have I been working at my new job long enough to ask for a, a week of vacation? How do I keep the romance alive in my marriage? All right, now these guys do it every Saturday, and they average between 30 and 40 people who come by seeking their advice. They're the most popular attraction at the farmer's market. So some of us might say we get advice from older, wiser, elder friends and families, and, and we hope that those experiences can give us some direction. Um, most of us have people that we go to for advice, right? But sometimes that doesn't pay off. Uh, I read an article this week uh, about a couple in Pennsylvania who went online and they checked their bank account one day, and to their surprise, there was an extra $120,000. A bank teller had accidentally deposited $120,000 in their account instead of somebody else's. And so they had a decision to make. What do we do? They purchased an SUV, and then they purchased a race car, and then they bought two four-wheelers, and then they bought a camper, and then they paid off some bills, and then they gave $15,000 to some friends. What generous people giving away someone else's money. Well, what do you think happened? Eventually, the bank realized they had made a mistake, and they contacted the couple, and they told them, we need you to return the money. But the couple said, we don't have the money anymore. The bank reached out to the state police. The couple was charged with felony theft. And as they walked into court, a reporter asked the husband why in the world they thought that they could spend this money. And he said, let me give you the direct quote. He said, all I'm going to say is we took some bad legal advice from some people, and it probably wasn't the best thing in the end. Okay, one of the things that we all do when we're faced with hard decisions is we go look to get good advice, but sometimes it's not so good. And I bring it up today because every single person in this room is going to be faced with another hard decision. I say another hard decision because you've already had hard decisions in your life. 
you're like me, your life has probably been a series of hard decisions and easy decisions and a lot of decisions somewhere in between. Sometimes they're out of tragedy. Sometimes they're out of opportunity. And like Andrea said last week when we kicked off this series, what if when you decide these things, the, 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 these, these things that can bring you to enriching experiences and, and wonderful relationships and a life full of joy, what if you decide well, or what if you don't decide well and those things can lead you to regret? And my guess is regrets, you've had a few. Uh, Frank Sinatra saying, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. And while I love his music, he's a liar. Because <laughs> most of us have more than a few regrets. Frank Sinatra was married four times. I'm sure there was regrets somewhere in those relationships. <laughs> now, this series is not about wallowing in our regrets. We're, we're not here to spend time on that today. This is about keeping you from making decisions that might lead to new regrets. But our plan here is not to just give you advice or to tell you where to go to get advice. We are not in the advice business. Each week, we're looking at the Bible together and drawing from the Bible some usable techniques for making these better decisions. What if you didn't have to ask advice for people that might turn out to be bad? What if you had five things that, like that, you could walk through in your head? Five questions. All right, real quickly. This past winter, I read an incredible book by Andy Stanley. I'll just recommend it if you're interested. It's called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And what he does, he gives his readers five questions to ask before they make a decision to help them make a better decision. And that inspired us to help you see these five questions in Scripture because they're in the Bible. Um, last week, Andrea looked with us at the prophet Jeremiah in a question that he was trying to get a few different kings to start asking when they made decisions. She called it the integrity question. And the question was, am I being honest with myself? Really? And today I want to show you another one. And I'll be honest, this is a question today that most people I know do not ask. I, I believe if people asked this question, it would change everything. It would change marriages. It would change how we purchase. It would change what we do in our careers. This would change our lives. Most people do not ask this question we're going to find in Scripture. And the reason is because when we make decisions, we tend to think about what our decisions mean for now. And this question I'm going to give you today is all about later. You'll see what I mean. Let me share with you a story that we find in the Bible, and then I'll show you the question, all right? Around 1850 BC, there was a teenager named Joseph who was somehow put in a very tough spot. Joseph had 11 brothers, which right there puts you in a tough spot. But what made it harder for Joseph was that his dad, Jacob, loved him more than all of his other sons. Joseph was the favorite Take a look at what Genesis 37, 4 says. It says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. You may have heard this story from the Bible. Hang with me here. I'm going to show you something in this you may not have ever seen before. One day, Jacob tells Joseph to go check on his brothers who are all out working in the fields and then come back with a report. And while he does this, Joseph reveals to his brothers a dream he had where one day all of those brothers will bow down to him and his greatness. Obviously, this upsets them even more. And here, here's what I want you to know. The 11 brothers feel like killing Joseph because of this. 
That sounds extreme. It is extreme, but the collective feeling they all have is too much to handle, apparently, and so they make a decision. Decision. Verse 19, let's put it up here. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns, and we will say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and and then we'll see what comes of those dreams. They decide to kill Joseph and throw him in a well. Now, Now, again, Many of you have heard this story before, nothing new so far, but I want to make a connection with you that I never made until recently. Take, take a close look here at verse 20. This verse doesn't just tell us they make the decision to kill him. It tells us that they're going to follow up that decision with a story. Decision, kill our brother. Story, say that a wild animal devoured him. So you know, one of the brothers has a change of heart, and he convinces the other people, the other brothers, to think about this a little bit longer. And so they they throw Joseph in the cistern, and then they sit down to eat so they can think. And while they're eating, a caravan comes through with some travelers who are heading to Egypt, and the travelers turn out to be slave traders. And so the brothers make a new decision. They decide to sell Joseph into slavery instead of killing him. But new decision, they're going to keep the story. They will tell their father that he was attacked by a wild animal and killed. Now, let me, let me just say that again. We'll sell our brother to these slave traders. These traders will sell him again to somebody else when they get to Egypt. And we brothers will tell our dad a story that our brother was attacked and killed. Story. What I want you to see in the passage we're reading today is how story plays into our decision-making. As they make the decision to kill their brother or sell their brother, they are thinking, what story will we tell? Decision and story go hand in hand. Now, that right there is foundational for the question that we're going to look at today. I'm going to teach you today. So I want to make sure you get this. Decision, story, they go hand in hand. So would you turn to the person you're sitting next to, even if they're a stranger, you had to do it across an aisle or something, say to them, decision and story go hand in hand. Extra credit if you make this motion. Extra credit. Okay. What this means is what you decide will ultimately determine what story you tell or what story is told about you. Can we just stop here for a second? Your decisions determine your story, what people will say about you. And let's let's be honest. Even when we say, well, I don't care what people think. Let, Let people talk. That's not true. We do care, which is why the brothers make up a story that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. In fact, another thing that we see in this passage, we are so concerned about the story that's going to be told, sometimes we manipulate the truth to tell a better story. Now, that's another message for another time, but I want you to see decision and story go hand in hand, and somewhere deep inside you, you know that. We all know that. Okay, more on that in a second. First, let's keep going with Joseph. Joseph eventually gets put up on the auction block, and he is purchased by a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of of Pharaoh's palace guard, and Joseph now has a decision of his own to make. Do I try to run away? If I do that, I might get killed. 
Do I do what most slaves around here do, which is as little as possible, or do I throw myself into this slave thing with everything I have? His decision, what kind of slave will I be? Joseph chooses to give it his all. Now, things go incredibly well. Potiphar notices how hard of a worker that Joseph is and how God is with him, and he notices how God seems to like bless everything that Joseph touches. And so Genesis 39 tells us, Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. What this means, Joseph ends up running the entire household. His decision to give this job his all paid off. Everything goes well until Joseph finds himself with another decision. The rest of verse 6 tells us this in in verse 7 as well. It says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph. And she said, come to bed with me. Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph. She wants to have an affair. Now, I will just kind of spoil this for you. Joseph makes a decision, no. Now, when we tell this story in church, we tend to make this a morality story. The the time that Joseph was faced with right or wrong, adultery or fidelity. I I want you to understand, he's a slave. He has no rights. He does not have the right to tell her no. He doesn't have the right to choose what's right. It's a very complicated decision he has to make. He also knows it's not right to betray Potiphar. In fact, it is dangerous. The writer tells us that day after day, she would beg him for sex. Day after day, he would refuse, which means he has to make this decision again and again and again and again. Now, what is the reason for the decision to say no? You ready? Let me show you verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 starts off, but he refused. There's his no. All right, now, that is his decision. Let's label it decision. But what do we know goes hand in hand with decision? Story, he continues, with me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. Nobody's greater in this house than I am. What he means by that is no one's in a higher leadership position than me. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. Joseph starts to walk walk her through his little part of his story. He says, Mrs. Potiphar, I came to this land as a slave. I had no rights. I had no future. When your husband purchased me, I decided to serve him to the best of my abilities. I have worked as hard as I possibly could. I have done everything anybody has asked me to do. And with God's help, your husband now trusts me. He put me in charge of his entire household. Why would I want to add adultery and betrayal to what's turning out to be a very good story. Even though I was almost killed, sold into slavery, God has given me another chance at life. This is an ending that I never dreamed possible for my story. So why would I make a decision that would mess up my entire story? And right here, Crosswinds, I want to stop and share with you the second question that we see in Scripture that we can be asking to help us make good decisions. The question, we're going to call it the legacy question, what story do you want to tell? 
Every single one of us can ask a very simple question when the story gets told someday of what I did in this moment. What story do I want told? Story number one for Joseph, your husband gave me an opportunity I never dreamed would come my way. I excelled at it. And when I was tempted, I was faithful to him and the God who's been watching out for me. Or story number two, your husband gave me an opportunity I never dreamed would come my way. So I took advantage of his trust and I slept with his wife. Just like his brothers, who when they made their decision to sell him, were thinking about what story would be told. And they made one up. Joseph is also thinking about his story. He's thinking about the legacy question. What story do I want to tell? See, what Joseph realized is every decision you make becomes a permanent part of your story. The story of your life. Every single decision, not just big, but medium ones and small ones, not just moral decisions, but decisions like what do I do this summer? Where do I want to work decisions? Where do I want to live decisions? Every decision you make becomes a permanent part of your story. And Joseph asked the question, what story do I want to tell? What, what story do I want told about me? I want a story worth telling. And when you're faced with a decision, big or small, if you ask this question, what story do I want told? It could make all the difference. What story do I want to tell? I have not talked too much about my family background here because uh, it's complicated and, and long and probably a little bit more of a distraction than it is not. But I think it might illustrate uh, what it is we're talking about a little bit. Um, my grandfather on my dad's side, his name was James Coley, James Coley. He was Italian. He was born to two Italian immigrant parents. They moved from Italy to Chicago. And my grandfather, as he became an adult, uh, somehow got in with kind of a rough crowd. Uh, he was the leader of a labor union in Chicago. But most people think that was just the day job for a lot of guys who were connected to the mob. Was he in the mob? Uh, hard to say, because it's tough when you talk about the mob. Nobody gets a mob membership card to show that they're in, right? How do you know whether somebody's in or not? Well, you know by who they spend time with and what they end up doing with that time. When I was in college, I worked for one of those labor unions. Uh, my grandfather was gone by then. He passed away when I was 10 from cancer. But, but I remember working the truck docks for this union in, at a huge Chicago convention center and, and introducing myself to some of the people there as Chris Coley. And some old timers, these guys in their 70s and 80s who were still working there, I remember them asking, you're a Coley? James Coley was your grandfather? And, and then they told me, I remember when he used to come around here, he was a tough guy and he would always come around and he would check in on us with a gun in his waistband. So you do the math on that. In 1945, one year before my dad was born, 1945, my grandfather was arrested for attempted hijacking, uh, also assault and battery. In that same year, he was questioned in the murder of a local Chicago politician. One year later, in February of 1946, my dad was born to that James Coley and his wife. Guess what they named my dad? James, after his dad. Great legacy to keep alive. All right, this is where the story gets weird. My grandfather and his wife, her name was Margaret, they got a divorce. And my dad grew up never seeing his mother again. Which, as I say that, would make you think that he was raised by his father, but that's not the case either. Because in 1952, when my dad was six, 
my grandfather was sentenced to prison for eight to ten years. Now, you would think that that's a prime time for Margaret to step back into my dad's life. Somebody had to take care of him while his dad was in prison, but she never did. And so my dad and his grandparents, the ones from Italy who spoke no English, moved to Southern California, to San Fernando Valley, where his two Italian grandparents who hated each other, would not talk to each other, would say, Jimmy, you got to go talk to her for me. You got to, in Italian, however they said that then, where they would raise him without a mom, with limited visits to his dad. The first James eventually got out of prison. He remarried. He had four more kids. They were raised by my grandfather. My dad, as far as I know, never invited back to be a part of the new family as a kid. It was interesting growing up with my dad who never knew his mom because we just never talked about her. I didn't know her name. What happened to her after she and the first James divorced? When my brother or I would ask my dad about her, he would seem angry that she never tried to find him. I get it. That might leave you feeling kind of bitter. And my dad, you know, his thought was, if she didn't want anything to do with him, then he didn't want anything to do with her. He didn't need her. Anyway, my dad, the second James, was raised by his grandparents in Southern California until the 1970s when he moved back to Chicago as an attorney, ultimately working for the state of Illinois. And then later, later, actually working for the labor union that my grandfather had been involved with all those years. Same town, same job, same name, but without all the corruption. <laughs> he worked in that position in Chicago for 18 years out of the same office my grandfather did. Well, a few years ago, I was bored one day. I was watching TV, and I saw a commercial for this thing, Ancestry.com. And I decided to pull it up and see what it was all about. And I'm telling you, this only took me like 15 minutes, but before long, I had discovered through old birth certificates and marriage certificates, I discovered my dad's mom's full name. And before long, I started to find pictures of her on there. And I discovered that she had remarried, but never had any other kids. Oh, and I discovered that she had passed away only four years earlier, that, that had I been four years faster to this Ancestry.com thing, I might have been able to reach her. And so, without telling my dad, I reached out to the woman that Ancestry.com told me was her niece. And I introduced myself and I said, I think that your aunt might be my grandmother. And her niece wrote me back as if they had been waiting to meet one of us. And she said, oh, you're Jimmy's son. And we scheduled time to talk on the phone. And you ready for what I found? That for over 60 years, she had been following my dad's journey that she had newspaper clippings of him when he graduated legal, uh, law school and, and his time working as a lawyer for the state of Illinois, that she had always wanted to meet him but had been afraid. And she was afraid because one night, as they divorced, my grandfather, the one questioned in a murder, the one arrested for attempted hijacking and assault and battery, one night, my grandfather pistol whipped her and told her that if she ever tried to contact my father, he would kill her. And so, afraid for her life, she never reached out, never tried to make contact. She kept distance when he moved to California. She kept distance when he moved back to Illinois. And would you believe that the apartment that she lived in until her death was five minutes away from my dad's office the whole time that he was working there? Legacy. 
what story will you tell? What story will they tell about you? For one James Coley, that's a story right there. And because it's ultimately part of my story, I have a right to tell it. Let me tell you a story about the first James son, the second James, the other James, my dad. During his time in California with grandparents that only spoke Italian, he went to a Nazarene church down the road where my other grandfather is a pastor. And he built friendships there and he gave his life to Christ there and he met and married my mom. Yes, eventually ends up back in Chicago, where as he takes over leadership of the labor union, he tells his dad, I will only come work for you if you let me do it my way on the up and up. I know it sounds sketchy, Italian, Chicago, labor union, son of the first guy. But let me tell you, he was the only guy with all of those things who was also a deacon at his Southern Baptist church at the time. I grew up in that Southern Baptist church. No drinking, smoking, dancing, listening to rock music. Can I just say, if you are corrupt, you don't hang out with Southern Baptists on the weekends. <laughs> he later at a church, much like Crosswinds, used his leadership gifts as a small group leader and a coach to other small group leaders. After his retirement, he became an elder at his church. Now he sits on the police advisory council in the town that he's retired to. How's that for irony? One James, an enemy of the police, the other James, police advisory. Unlike his dad, he is actively involved in his son's lives. As one of those sons, I'll say maybe too involved. <laughs> uh, when we were little, he would sing us to sleep every night. I'm pretty sure that's why I like to play ukulele and like sing songs along with it as one of my hobbies. He FaceTimes with his granddaughters almost every day. If he grew up without a dad or a mom, he made the opposite decision to give everything for his family, to make his family his biggest priority. He had no role model, no lessons, no parenting seminars. He just did it right. And the legacy that he will leave behind the story that we will tell will be very different from the one his father left. Can I tell you there's a third James? It's me. My actual name is James Christopher Coley. How will this one end up? The jury is still out. <laughs> but unlike my grandfather, it's a metaphorical jury, not a real one. All right. For both of those men, the stories are what they are because of their decisions. And here's what you've got to know. If my grandfather knew that his grandson would grow up to be a pastor and stand in front of you telling you about why I never knew my grandmother on my dad's side, if my grandfather knew that someday I would tell you that story, one, I don't know that I'd be alive to tell it, but two, I believe he would have opted for a better story. I believe he would have treated Margaret better if it occurred to him that someday his own grandchildren, one with his name, would tell you about his choices that got him arrested and eventually doing time in prison, he might have decided differently. And here's what you must know about the legacy question and about story and your decisions. Private decisions don't remain private. Personal decisions, they impact other persons. And once your story becomes somebody else's, it becomes their story to tell. Can I let you in on a secret? Actually, you just heard most of my secrets, but, <laughs> but, but one more. The reason we don't think about our story is because we think our decisions are about now. And story is about later. 
When someone says, I'm going to leave my spouse because right now I don't feel like the marriage is working anymore. That's now thinking. But later thinking says, wait a second. If I leave my spouse without us giving this a real try together, a real try, intensive counseling and, and work, hard work, all right, the story that my kids will tell someday later, because it'll be their story, the story's not going to be that our marriage didn't work. The story's going to be that I gave up. If I am wronged by somebody in my family or a friend, or if I'm wronged by somebody at church, and I choose now that I'm going to break away because of it, never deal with the conflict, and forgive the story later, not going to be that I was wronged. The story that's going to be told is that I lived angry and bitter and I can never get past my own ego. If I have an addiction and today I am staring, faced with this decision, do I drink this drink in front of me? I can ask the question, what's the story I want to tell? Or I want others to tell. That, that today was the day that I gave in and it becomes one more moment. I lost a lot of people's trust. Or today was the day that I resisted and I began my sobriety and building my life back again. Um, when I was 21, I just finished college, and I was getting ready to move out to Southern California myself for grad school. Uh, about two weeks before I left, a, a friend of mine, uh, just part of the group of friends that I, I, I used to hang out with, um, she surprisingly came up and asked me out on a date. Uh, it was weird. I was not that interested in this girl, had never thought about her in that way. Um, I knew we were incredibly incompatible, different interests, different visions for life. Uh, she liked country music. I hated country music at the time. More than anything, I knew that we were spiritually incompatible, just on very different pages. But I could also tell that it took courage to like ask a guy out, and I didn't want to let her down. So I said, yeah, let, let's go on a date more, I was thinking, hey, I'm leaving in two weeks, so it's not like this is going to turn into anything. Okay, we went out on the date. It was a good time. I, I, if I recall, we had fun, but that was it, and I remember saying, I would love to continue this, but I'm moving, and I was thinking, oh, that'll let her down easy, and, and that's that. Date was over. Goodbye. Two days later, I got a phone call. Chris, I have great news. I have just been offered a job as a nanny 10 miles from where you're moving to in Southern California. And I leave in a week. And I thought, oh. And then, and then I thought, oh, well, you know, I, I don't really know anybody in Southern California. Might be nice to have a friend to hang out with and who knows, maybe even a girlfriend. Ugh. Decision, decision, decision. Two years later as we broke up. I was thinking, how in the world did I get myself into this? And part of my story is that I wasted two years of my life dating somebody that I knew was not the one from the very beginning. And had I just asked the question at any point along the way, is this decision going to lead me into the better story? It would have saved me two years and a lot of heartache. And her a lot of heartache. Okay, this coming year, some of you here will be faced with taking a job that will offer you so much more money. It's going to happen here for somebody. But the decision to take it, it might take you away from your family and your friends who've become a very important support system in your life. And maybe the decision to say yes to the new organization would lead you away from the one you've been with that is really healthy and the new one is kind of unknown. You could ask the question, what story do I want to tell or have told? 
my mom, my dad, my spouse took the job that offered more money, or, wow, my mom, my dad, they so valued community and health for our family that they turned down more lucrative opportunities. Okay, that second one, a far better story for your family. Some of you here, you have a vision to do something else with your life, your, your career. You feel like God has been speaking to you to do something different in an area of great passion for you, but it means you're going to have to take a risk to leave the job you're at, the one that pays well. It means giving up some real security. Okay, but if you ask the question, what's the story I want told someday? Your story could be that you stayed where you were and never pursued your dreams, or the story could be that you stepped into risk and you were not afraid to show your kids what it looks like to follow their passions. Some of you may have been wronged and you are feeling pretty angry and bitter. And can I just tell you, you have a decision to make right now. Your story could be that you were wronged and angry and you held on to it for the rest of your life. Or it could be that even when you had every right to walk away, every reason you found forgiveness. You modeled forgiveness to your family, the same forgiveness shown to you by Jesus. Like Joseph, like his brothers, you and I, we are writing our stories one decision at a time. You write the story that is your life every single day with every decision. And, and the truth is, we've all lived long enough to have chapters that we wish we could erase, right? I do. No doubt you got a few stories you wish you could rewrite. We all do. That's called regret. Chances are you could have avoided your biggest regrets if you had paused to ask, what story do I want told? You can start writing the rest of your story today from here on out. Write a story worth telling. Write one that you are proud of. All right, will you stand with me? Let's pray together before we go. God, as we look at the story we looked at today of Joseph, God, as we, we all here reflect on our stories, there's not one person here who's heard us talking about this and, and hasn't been thinking, what's the story they tell about me right now? God, every one of us has a story that has some regrets. Like I said, more than a few. We are full of regrets. God, thank you for being a God who shows us his grace and forgiveness and mercy and love, even when we have decided wrong. Thank you for being a God who invites us into new stories from here. And so I would just ask, God, that you help us answer this question, that you tell us what story you would have us write. God, we are grateful for your forgiveness. We're grateful for new chances. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for coming today. We'll see you next week.